Heavenly Father, thank you that you have been speaking to us uh, by your Spirit, through your Word, as it's been read. And we pray now, as we come to consider this passage together, that your Spirit will continue to do that. We pray that he would open our hearts to, to, uh, to hear, uh, to see, uh, to love Jesus, and to respond to him rightly. Uh, please, and uh, we ask that uh, he would enable me to preach your word uh, rightly and in his power. Uh, and may Christ be glorified uh, in this whole process. And so we ask for your work among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, please be seated. And could you keep your uh, booklets open on page fourteen, fifteen? there? Uh, on the passage that uh, we've just read, Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 44. Uh, and if you look at your bulletin uh, that you received as you came in, there is a, in the center pages of your bulletin, there is an outline of the sermon there uh, with a couple of cross-references, so it might be helpful to have that uh, open in front of you as well. I wonder if you ever thought about this question. If God loves people, will he still punish them? And if he punishes people, does it mean that he doesn't love them? If God really loves me, does it mean I don't have to repent? How do I know if, if love and punishment can go together? Well, it's not by philosophy, isn't it? Now, it's not by trying to work out by human reasoning alone uh, whether, whether that is possible. It's not by speculation or by wishful thinking. You know, I'd love to think, you know, if God is love and he doesn't punish because I don't want to get punished. And, but, but the problem is we're not at liberty to make up God, are we? A uh, made-up God is an idol, not a real God. We've got to deal with the real God, the God who is there, not the God of our imagination. And how do we know the God who is there? We call the God who is there through Jesus Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation of God. And as we look at Jesus in our passage today, not only we will see the answer to that question, but we will see the implications for us, each one of us here, whoever we are. The passage is set on the very first Palm Sunday, the Sunday one week before Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus, for a long time now, has been traveling. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He knows that in Jerusalem he's going to get rejected and killed, but he goes anyway because he knows this is part of God's plan. He knows he's going to be executed for our sins, that he would take the punishment for us that we deserve so we can be forgiven. He knows he's going to get buried. He knows that he's going to rise on the third day and be vindicated as the true king God has promised over and over again in the Old Testament. And then from there he will ascend into heaven and rule over God's people forever. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to be made king. Now, if the leadership of Jerusalem were people who truly loved God, things would be different, wouldn't they? They would receive Jesus. They would submit to him as the son of David, the king. They would bow before him as Lord. They would recognize that in him all the promises of God were being fulfilled. But of, but of course, this is not to be. It's, it's not in their hearts. And it's not in God's plan. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows that he will receive the kingdom there through death, resurrection, and exaltation. And now he's getting close. Soon he will arrive in the city. 
In verse 29, he's drawing near to Bethphage and Bethany, only about a mile or two outside the city. He's at the Mount of Olives. And he sends two of his disciples into the village with some very strange instructions. We read about them in verse 30. Go into the village in front of you, and on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, we don't know if Jesus has made arrangements beforehand with this person, and so this is a code that he's telling him to use, like, you know, like a secret password for the owners, or if he's using supernatural knowledge and he's requisitioning transport, something that ancient kings had the right to do in that world. Whichever way it was, it all happens just as he says. They find the colt, and the owner asks them, why are they untying it? And they say, the Lord has need of it. And they bring the colt to Jesus. And then they do something that's really unusual. You see, pilgrims to Jerusalem would normally actually dismount from whatever beast they're riding and walk the final way of their pilgrimage. But the opposite happens in verse 35. In verse 35, they, they, they bring the colt to Jesus, they throw their cloaks on it, and they set Jesus on it. So Jesus is now riding the colt. Why? What's the significance of that? Well, in the Old Testament, back in 1 Kings 1.33, King Solomon, David's literal son, had ridden on David's donkey to be anointed king. And so another son of David had come into this very city 1,000 years before to be made king riding on a donkey. And then, of course, there's Zechariah 9.9 in your passage in front of you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the fall of a donkey. There on the outline, you see it? God's king who would save Israel would arrive in Jerusalem on a colt. But riding on the colt is not the only thing that happens. Look at verse 36. As he rides along, they, they spread their cloaks on the road. And again, there's precedence in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 9.13, the, the people spread their cloaks on the ground before Jehu when he is proclaimed king of Israel. For the ancient might, clothes represent their wearers. And so spreading your clothes beneath someone is a sign of submission to them. They're saying, yes, Jesus is king, and we express that by spreading our garments before him. And Jesus comes in, he's saying, by riding on the donkey into Jerusalem, that he is God's promised king. The disciples are saying, he is God's promised king. God's promised king is about to arrive in Jerusalem, his capital city, for his coronation. Now, when a king arrives for the coronation, you can expect a lot of fanfare, can't you? You can expect crowds of people to be acclaiming him. Be shouts like, long live the king, or, or daulat tuanku, right? Or something like that, depending on which culture you're in. And that's what happens. As he comes even closer to Jerusalem, he's coming down now from the Mount of Olives, down on the Jerusalem side. Verse 37. 
the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. These are the disciples who have come with Jesus. They've come all the way. They've seen Jesus. He's healed the sick. He's made the lame walk. He's made the deaf hear. He's given blind their sight. He's calmed the storm. He's fed the multitude. He's raised the dead. He's cast out demons. He's cleansed the lepers. He has, over these last three years, been doing things that point to the fact that God had come to save his people. He's done the works of the Messiah, God's promised king, in fulfillment of prophecy. They know what's going on. And they praise God in verse 38 saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There is no doubt about it now. Jesus is God's promised king and this crowd of disciples recognize him as king. But not only that, they acclaim him as king. And friends, as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, it is indeed right that we should acclaim Jesus as the King. He is the King who not only fulfilled all of God's prophecies and entered Jerusalem that day, He's the King who went on in Jerusalem to die for you and for me. He is the King who loved us so much that He was willing to take our place under the wrath of God for our sins so that we can become part of His people. He is the king whom God the Father raised from the dead and exalted as king over every inch of his whole creation. And so today we join with people from all over the world in acclaiming him. He deserves all the glory. He deserves all the Lord, all the honor. For he is the perfect, just, loving, rightful king of every man, woman, and child on this planet. But we don't just acclaim him as the king of everyone the rightful king of everyone, we bow before him as king of our lives. He deserves our allegiance. He deserves our obedience. He deserves our loyalty. He is our king, your king and mine. But not everyone in this crowd is a disciple of Jesus. Not everyone's praising God. Not everyone agrees that Jesus is the rightful king. There are critics as well. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're too enthusiastic. Uh, they're getting carried away. You know? They talk about things like, like this. Romans might come and cause all kinds of problems. Right? Get your disciples under control. But Jesus wasn't about to do that. What the disciples were doing, actually, that was, was perfectly appropriate and right. Not only right, in fact, it's ultimately inevitable. Not only people, but the whole creation will one day give Jesus the glory that he's due. He puts it dramatically when he says in verse 40, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And you know, friends, today, there are not only those who acclaim Jesus, there are those who object to it, aren't there? Some people don't like what Jesus stands for. Some people don't like the fact that he should be their ruler. Some people have been seduced by false leaders who put themselves above him and, and deny his ultimate authority. And here on this first Palm Sunday, we see the religious leaders in a city where God's king was meant to reign 
object to Jesus being acclaimed as king. An ominous foretaste of how he will be received in the city. So we've seen that Jesus is God's promised king. We've seen how the people acclaimed him and well, some didn't. The next part of our passage tells us something about his character as king. Come to verse 41. Because there we see Jesus drawing near and he can see the city. The city's in sight. And as he sees the city, something very surprising happens. In the midst of all this fanfare and praise and excitement, Jesus begins to cry. He's becoming very emotional. Uh, the word there is a very strong one. It's not just tearing, he's sobbing. As he drew near, it says, he saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Why is he crying? Why is he weeping? Well, listen to what he says, verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In Jesus Christ, God had come to save his people. But his salvation was about to be rejected. Jesus would be tried in a sham trial. He'd be handed over to the Gentiles, be mocked and spat upon and crucified and, and left for dead. God had come to save his people and they were going to reject him. 600 years before this, God had punished Jerusalem for their sin. There had been an awful siege the city had been destroyed, her people killed or taken into exile, and now Jesus says this is going to happen all over again because they rejected Jesus, the son whom God had sent to save them and rule them. They should have known better. They had the Old Testament scriptures, they read them all the time, but they didn't relate them to Jesus. They had Jesus himself performing all the signs that show the coming of the kingdom. They had his teaching, they had his miracles, they had everything. They should have known better. But they closed their minds and hardened their hearts and they did not know the time of their visitation. And so Jesus wept as he pronounced his judgment upon them. You see, friends, in Jesus we see the very heart of God himself. God loves people. He really does, even the people who reject him. He takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner. His heart goes out to them in love. 
He does not want people to perish, but to repent and live. But the fact that Jesus wept for the people of Jerusalem did not stop him from pronouncing the judgment. And 40 years later, in AD 70, that judgment came. God loves those who reject him. God weeps over the lost. But God will still bring his justice to bear on this world. And so those who reject Jesus, those who reject the salvation that God offers in him, those who are not covered by his blood shed upon the cross on their behalf, will still have to face the righteous judgment of God for their sins. We can't deny this reality as much as we might wish it weren't the case. But we can never talk about God's judgment or hell in a kind of a smug or unfeeling kind of way. We can only do so with tears. Because God loves people, even the ones who reject him. And yet at the very same time brings them to judgment. We know these things go together because the God whom we know is the God who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So friends, what have we seen today? We've seen that Jesus is the true king, the one who fulfilled all the promises in the Old Testament, that he is worthy of acclamation and adoration. We've seen that he was rejected and executed in the city where God's king was meant to reign, and in him we have seen God's heart, who loves the lost and weeps for them. How will we respond? Well, those of us who know Jesus is our king, we must, we must acclaim him, mustn't we? But we mustn't just acclaim him, we must also follow him. We must have hearts like his, hearts that love lost people. Do you and I have heart like that? If we don't care for people who are not saved, if we're so comfortable with our church situation and our friends and we're just indifferent to the lost, then, then we are not being like Christ. Jesus cared deeply for people who rejected him and were heading for judgment. I know there are many people in St. Mary's who, who have a heart just like that. I've sat with a number of people here in this cathedral as they've cried and wept for loved ones who do not know Jesus. And if you cry and weep for someone who doesn't know Jesus, then know this. God cries and weeps over them as well. He loves them even more than you do. He is never indifferent. He loves people passionately, even those who reject him. We are to weep for those who reject Christ and be, be genuinely sorry for their future. Yet at the same time, we must not allow our wishes to blur our thinking about God's perfect and righteous judgment. Finally, I wonder if there's anyone here tonight who is still rejecting Jesus as your king. 
I wonder if there's anyone here who's still a bit embarrassed about him or fearful of the consequences of receiving him or resistant to him. Or you don't want him to be king in your life because that's going to mean a change in how you live. Or maybe you're just indifferent to him. But indifference means you're not letting him be king. If that is you this evening, let me tell you this. You have less excuse than Jerusalem even for rejecting Jesus. They had the Old Testament scriptures. You have the Old Testament and the New. They had Jesus' teaching, his miracles, everything. You have access to all that as well in the scriptures. And someone who is willing to sit with you and explain it to you and answer whatever question you have to ask. All you need to do is fill up one of those blue cards in the bulletin and drop it in the perspex box and someone will contact you to do that. You have less excuse than Jerusalem. But even more importantly, Jesus loves you as much as he loved Jerusalem. He really, really, really loves you. He loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. He was willing to go all the way and hang on that cross to take your punishment for your sins so God can forgive you and still remain just. And he is your only hope. That death on the cross is the only way you can be saved. So please, you must turn from your sin and trust in him. You must let him be your king. Do not go the way of Jerusalem. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus, is that true king that you promised. Thank you for showing that again and again. Thank you for all the things that he did, the signs, the miracles, all the fulfillment of all the prophecies. Thank you ultimately that you raised him from the dead and vindicated him as your king. And as the crowds acclaimed him as king so many years ago, we acclaim him as our king today. And we pray that you give us hearts that beat like his. May we have hearts that really do love other people. May we be people who are genuinely concerned for the lost. But may we also have hearts that, that know the truth about your judgment and don't water it down because that's how we'd like things to be. And Father, we pray that if there are people here who are still not trusting in your Son, if there are people here today who have not yet submitted to him as their Lord and King, who intend to face you on the judgment day without the salvation that he brings, please have mercy on them and send your Spirit to open their hearts and soften their, soften their hearts. May they trust in Christ crucified for their sins and hand their lives over to him to rule as their king. Please, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.